In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Hello. Hey. Uh, Happy Saturday. Happy Saturday. I'm, I'm feeling strangely energized because we were just talking about coffee. <laughs> <laughs> you were like, yes, I'm feeling it kick in. Yeah, exactly. What's new? Um, hmm. Well, I feel like we've gotten through all of the fall activities besides, like, Thanksgiving, so that's good. Like like apple picking and Halloween, you mean? Yeah, basically. Like, any kind of fall stuff that happens, I feel like, you know, All Hallows' Eve, um, Samhain, whatever you celebrate <laughs> is basically kind of is winding down now. Uh, yeah. And we're getting into my favorite time of year, probably your least... <laughs> Uh, yeah it's coming i won't say it. i won't be that person but it's coming and i'm excited about it <laughs> well yeah i uh i've seen all the memes of like mariah carey frozen <laughs> in a block of ice that says she is defrosting yes <laughs> oh i saw one that, what was so, it was so funny it was jamie lee curtis <laughs> did uh-huh. you see it it was no. um oh no i don't think so i think she's doing a commercial for halloween but it's like jamie lee curtis doing it and in the commercial I don't know what actually is in there because in the meme I seen it was superimposed over. But um, oh yes, it's like her like turning around really fast and it's yes. Mariah hiding behind a tree. Yes, I did see that. Yes, yes. oh, it was the chicest ad I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, Dorit, um, I'm I'm so sad that they didn't make fun of hot and cold. Oh, that was the best. I mean, I don't even know what the best part was. I think for me, the part that was my favorite was. <laughs> She brought out a license plate uh, frame that just said the name of the charity on it. And she goes, amazing. 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 (laughs) (laughs) It it goes around the license plate, but not Um, over it. Brilliant. Amazing. Brilliant and legal. Um, (laughs) What else? Just been watching a lot of Housewives. Uh, I'm behind on Salt Lake. I haven't seen the newest one. Oh, it's, it's Salt Lake has been great from the jump. I mean, yeah, and honestly, I really Beverly didn't... Hills had a great season. Finally, I like, I agree. Great. I think Beverly Hills had a great season. People on the internet are very divided on it, but I really liked it. Oh, please! This is what people have been asking for. The last two seasons have saved Beverly Hills from a New York legacy fate. A hundred percent. If Erica hadn't gotten embroiled in her legal scheme, Beverly Hills, I think, would have been canceled already. Right. Right. Uh, well, I think the only thing, only updates I have are that I started but have not finished the documentary you mentioned a couple episodes ago, Sins of the Mother. Oh, 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 oh. And I I had known that story. Like, I'd, I'd heard it before. Maybe it was on another podcast that I listened to or something like that. But mm-hmm. I know that I've I've heard pieces of it before. So it, so far, it's a well-produced, you know, documentary. It's interesting. It's just wild like the whole zombie aspect is just i had forgotten about that part of it right when that starts coming up you're like oh wow this this is something else especially when you see their like actual correspondence and the language they're using yes yes like you're never gonna believe who the last zombie is your dad oh my god what wow since when january yes okay they're they're texting to each other grown adults with children jobs like homes have have done the things these grown people are texting each other in a way that a 
I'm not even exaggerating, that a 14-year-old would write fan fiction for yes. Supernatural on the internet. Yes. And then I, my favorite part is the uh, is the woman who's like, oh, my God. And, and these are her words. She's like, they are crazy. I know because I, have, I speak oh. with, uh, like, angels uh, yes. uh, daily that they are absolutely crazy. And I was just like, oh, my God. And she was like, and you would look at me and think, I'm crazy. And I was like, well, you Correct. said it, sister, not yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, I don't like to throw the word crazy around as much as she does. But, uh, no. I mean, hey, listen, if you're going to use it to self-identify, I'm absolutely going to allow it. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, so that's been wild. Mm. I, I think I have maybe one episode left because I think it's only like four episodes. Yeah, it's pretty quick, which I appreciate because yeah. sometimes Me they too. drag these things out and the beginning of every like subsequent episode is a summation of the entire previous episode. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, the only other thing is I, I did, haven't written down all the details because I feel like there's like six of them, but there are like a bunch of really big cases that have gotten like big news. Like the, mm. they've arrested somebody, somebody in the Delphi murders. Oh, right. Um, they, they identified the remains of the woman in the dunes. Oh, they did. I didn't know that. Yeah. And I think they even have identified, um, the like family line of the, Oh gosh, the guy from Australia who just had the 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 Tom and Shude, the Tom and Shude mystery has like a a new lead. Oh, um, I don't even think I know that one at all. Oh, you totally do. It's like he he was a man who like his body was found on a beach. He had like a jacket <gasps> that had all the tags removed oh, and had like with a, the pocket with the yes. secret pocket and the the yes. from the book and they found the book Correct. and oh yes. what? no way yes. so so they found like his nearest relatives Shut and so mouth. they think they know who he is now i'm going to puke uh, that's a big one and then of course one. yeah that is a big one and then um you know the the Paul and Ruben Flores case mm. he was convicted finally uh, what else i feel like there Adnan Syed his his conviction was overturned and all charges were dropped amazing yeah, so I, I some think really should... big, big things happening in the in the true crime world. And you know what I've been thinking? Maybe at the end of this season, write this down. <laughs> okay. Maybe at the end of this season, it's our fifth season, so we should do a look back at some of our previous cases that we've done. Yeah, especially yeah. the ones that were more current. Um, like I know you had that case about the indigenous girl um Kisera mm, yes. walks with stops pretty places stops yeah. pretty places thank you so much um and i know that one was unsolved at the time i had the case about the the girl and her boyfriend who killed the psychologist the the pediatrician and they yeah. were supposed to go to trial over the summer so maybe we should look up some of these old ones at the end of the season and do sort of a recap of any updates yeah that would be interesting season five finale hmm <laughs> Well, I have one final thing. Oh, okay. So we do this thing at work. It's um, it's called Gallup, the company, and they G A L L U P. Yeah, yeah. And uh-huh. I, I'm sure they do a ton of different things, like workplace engagement things and stuff. But they have a test, or a, I should say, an assessment called Clifton Strengths. Uh, based oh on yeah, Don Clifton. Oh, okay, good. So you know it. I only know it because of work, but I'm sure it's something I'm preaching to the choir it's one of those things you know what are your yeah. strengths the whatever so we do it at work and uh i got to do it again because i've been there for a certain amount of time and i just did it 
and I got my top five results. And I just thought, as I was reading them, they apply so much to our, our podcasts. Oh, really? Yeah, I was like, well, I saw, of course, all of the strengths that like helped me at work. But I was like, wow, some of these really, really apply to the podcast. And I, the one I just wanted to say that I got last time and I got this time again uh-huh. is uh, one of my strengths was called Input. Oh, yeah. And it's for people who like to collect and archive information. And when I was reading the little, like, what does this say about you kind of thing? Uh, mm-hmm. Let me just see what it says that I thought about for this podcast. Um, you are likely to pull together ideas from printed materials or internet sites. Uh, typically, you could talk about complicated topics or situations by highlighting only the basic points. Uh, driven by your talents, you make a point of reading books, articles, or internet sites. <laughs> <laughs> and you acquire the knowledge about topics and issues uh, that interest people. And because of that, people welcome you into their group of uh, friends, associates, or acquaintances. And in this case, maybe their their earbuds or whatever, AirPods. I was like, that's so cute. When I'm I got that last just... time, I didn't – it was like a few years ago before we were podcasting when I first got the job. And I was like, okay, I guess that's kind of me. And now looking at it. It's a lot, a lot about reading too, like the enjoyment of reading and, and analyzing books. And I was like, "That's our other show." Yeah. So I, I have my cool. results somewhere, but I can't find them. Oh, so. if you Excuse log me. into the website from no matter how long ago you took it, if you had an account, it'll show you your top five. Okay. Or whatever you did, if you out. did more. Anyway, well, just great. thought that was cutesy, 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 yeah. <laughs> super cutesy. Are you ready for the uh, for the episode? I am. Mm. Uh, So I'm the recapper this time. Mm -hmm. And this is season five, episode four of Law and Order. It is entitled Family Values. Do you remember the song Family Portrait by Pink? Um, You know, is that one of her slower songs? It it was one of the early ones about like having a a divorced parents. Not super. I so Pink, I will confess, like I liked... I liked like get this party started, mm-hmm. and when she got into the just like a pill, just like a pill, like I took a hard left turn and was not on board. Mm-hmm. Not because it wasn't a good song, but it just was on constantly mm-hmm. on repeat. I just couldn't handle it. Um, but I, I, she's very talented, and I really, really like her voice. Yeah, I, I agree. What just like a pill was one of those, and get the party started is probably my least favorite Pink song. Oh my god. It's so fun. Uh, it's the song that comes on like everywhere you go a hundred thousand times. And the chorus, it's one of those songs that has a repeating chorus that repeats way too many times and you always forget it's too long until it's on for a long time. No, no. <laughs> but let me tell you what Family Portrait by Pink came out. You should look it up. You've probably heard it. It's from back in our day in like TRL days. But um, oh, sure. it was my anthem. I was like, oh my God, finally someone understands me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to have to split the holidays either, Pink. <laughs> <laughs> That's anyway, funny. So anyway, family values. Go ahead. <laughs> well, this episode opens on a couple of guys, like a, a car on a bridge and the like hood is popped up and these two guys are kind of like talking and it sounds like they are like thinking about how to hotwire this car. I think it's a Mercedes, but uh, it's a car on a bridge. And, you know, it seems like that they are 
um, potentially going to hotwire it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just then, some beat cops roll up and are like, what are you doing? Like, oh, sure. Like, they say that they were just trying to help, blah, blah, blah. So they say they don't know where the owner of the car is, but they were just, like, trying to help and get the car started. And then the beat cops, like, walk over to the car and see keys on the floor for the car and high heels on the floor. And I'm like, so either these guys are the dumbest people alive because they clearly, like, came across this car and are like, let's figure out a way to steal it. But they don't even look to see if the keys are inside of the car before they start (laughs) popping in the hood and trying to figure out how to hotwire it. Right. I didn't even think of that. (laughs) Also, I don't know why... I thought hot wiring a car happened from inside, not from under the hood. I thought so too. I thought it was like you get inside and then you like bust open the the console the thing behind and the touch tire, the wires together, the yeah. wheel or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? Um, so anyway, Logan and Briscoe arrive and they find out that the car is registered to a Laura Madsen, and I don't quite understand how they then get her home phone number, but. They call her home phone number, and the person who answers is her husband, whose name is Steve Martell. And he says he doesn't know where she is and, like, was wondering. He assumed she was at work, but, uh, you know, he he didn't know where his wife was. And mm-hmm. Logan and Briscoe were like, oh, some marriage or whatever. <laughs> because it's, like, one in the morning. Right. So they go to the apartment to talk with him. And uh, he says that he got home around one o'clock. She wasn't home. He figured she was working. And they're like, what does she do? And they find out she works in publishing. And he says he called over to her office, but she wasn't there. And he says, I waited up for her and she fell asleep. And, you know, you know I, didn't, uh, I didn't ever see her. So down at the station... Uh, or sorry, then they talk to the daughter, who is played by the one, the only, Sarah Paulson. I couldn't believe it. I was like, the minute I saw her, I was like, oh my god. And then I felt really old because, not the, in my mind, Sarah Paulson, I, I actually, I want to look up how old she is. Uh, because in my mind, she's like at least a solid 10 to 15 years older than me. Uh, which, I guess she is. She's, well, no, she's eight years older than me. Hmm. Uh, and I was like, how is she, how is Sarah Paulson playing like an adult in a show in the 90s? I, well, I guess if she was eight years older than me. So. I didn't have a lot of exposure to her before American Horror Story, to be honest, or at least yeah. not to my knowledge. I probably now looking back seen her in things and just didn't know her name. Yeah. But yeah, I was surprised to see her in something so long ago. I was like, oh my God, how long has she been acting for? I'm so clueless. This is one of her few roles where she is not like chain smoking. <laughs> Nonstop. That's true. Which but is she about, does have the same sort of like <laughs> yes. out of breath, sort of panicky. I, I love Sarah Paulson. I think she's incredible. I think she's Me a very too. gifted actress. Actress, but many of her roles that I've seen her in have this sort of like out of breath, uh, emotional moment. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. Um, and she is playing the daughter of Laura Madsen, the missing woman. Mm-hmm. And so we learn she's like seventeen in this show. Uh, and she says that she went to a concert that night and she got home at about 930. Uh, and she said she and her mom talked about the concert and then she went to bed and she doesn't know what could have happened. Mm -hmm. So down at the station, they're trying to figure out 
you know, did this woman die by suicide? Did she jump off the bridge? So they they start like uh, trawling the river below the bridge to try to fig- find a body. And meanwhile, they go and talk to this woman's therapist to try to see like, okay, was she having like suicidal thoughts? Uh, let's find out. So the therapist says, you know, she definitely was not a candidate for suicide was her her words, uh, which her husband had said that he wasn't surprised that this that this had happened because she had attempted suicide a few years ago, he said. Mm-hmm. But the therapist says, no, that was not a suicide attempt. This woman had a, a pill addiction and she one time like took her you know, regular dose of pills, but forgot that she had taken them and so then took them again. And it was not enough to kill her. Uh, She just ended up in the hospital because of it. Mm. So they're like, huh, the husband is kind of giving us a false version of of this woman's history. So um, the the therapist, by the way, is played by Mary Beth Peel, who played i never watched it but she played grams on dawson's creek for like 90 episodes or 120 episodes or something like that oh i didn't even recognize her but i totally watched dawson's creek almost to the end and she also <laughs> played jackie florick who i'm pretty sure is actually big's uh, big logan's uh mom on the good wife oh. i'm pretty sure that's i'm pretty sure he's florick and i think she plays his mom so that's kind of funny there in this too so um, they go talk to the woman's ex-husband, and he is, like, swirling a cocktail glass full of liquor like he's a Bond villain, uh, <laughs> which is not the choice that I would make if police showed up to your house about your missing wife, but hey. And he says that the evening that she disappeared, Laura had called looking for Maggie, their daughter, and he says it's probably because Maggie was, like, three nanoseconds late getting home. And so we kind of get the picture from him, as well as from a couple other people in her life, that Laura was sort of a not not the easiest person and was a very kind of, like, overbearing mother and, like, needed to know what her daughter was doing at every at any moment. Uh, but his apartment is in Queens, and he says that he was— uh, they ask where he was at the time of the, her disappearance, and he's like, I was waiting for my car to take me to LaGuardia Airport, because uh, he also works in publishing, and he had, like, a, a flight out of town that evening. Um, and he works at Madsen Publishing. So Laura Madsen is, like, heiress to a publishing empire. Mm. And uh, they work together, even though that they're divorced. So they head down to the publisher to learn a, a little bit more about the relationship between the missing woman and the ex-husband. And the woman that they talked to says that Laura worked in real publishing. Uh, she like did, you know, bestseller novel type stuff. And he just like did a coffee table book about cognac. So he, the opinion at the publishing house is that like he's kind of a hack and she's the real deal. Mm-hmm. And they ask like, what was their relationship like? And the woman says that uh, Laura never really complained. But before the divorce, she had come in one day with a bruised cheek and a bandage on her lip. Uh, and he had been a no-show for a week at work following that. So uh, she said she heard them yelling a lot. And most recently, about a week ago, she heard them yelling at each other because uh, Laura had some kind of paper that she wanted the ex-husband to sign. So they head to the lawyer of Laura Madsen, who tells them that Laura had wanted Maggie 
the daughter, to do a sort of like study abroad, you know, boarding school program type thing. But the custody arrangement between Laura and the ex-husband requires his approval for her to leave the state. And according to the lawyer, he was not very willing to sign anything, allowing Maggie to leave the state. Mm. And the lawyer plays them a 911 call recording, which I, I was very confused as to how this recording came about, but they play this recording uh, that Laura had made or that 911 had made when Laura called them. Uh, I guess Victor, the ex-husband, was like th- banging at the door and threatening to like break the door down to get in there. And Laura called 911, and Maggie was there with them. And then you hear him yell, like, give me that phone after he breaks down the door and there's a scream. And so they're like, okay, now they're thinking that Laura, who has gone missing, had gone to her ex-husband's apartment that night to get him to sign the paperwork to allow Maggie to study abroad. He was drunk, he killed her by accident, and then he staged her car to make it look like a suicide. Mm. So they go and talk to his driver, this supposed car that he was waiting for to take him to the airport. And he's like, oh, yeah, it was weird. That night he was like late and he didn't show up when he was supposed to. And it's so unusual because every other time he's been right on time. But that's all they really get out of him. Meanwhile, they do find Laura's body in the harbor. And there's this weird scene where they like show her being taken out of the water and As this is happening, the current husband shows up and goes, oh, my God, it's Laura, and then walks away. And I'm like, number one, how did he just show up while this was happening? Because if they found a body, they would have, like, taken it to the, you know— morgue or wherever, and then and then he would have been contacted to identify it. It, They wouldn't have called him and said, hey, we found some body in the river. Why don't you come on down? Right. That would have been, that was so weird. We got a surprise for you. Yeah. Um, So they go back to talk to Sarah Paulson and ask, uh, and ask her if her mom said anything about her plans that evening about going to talk to her dad, the ex-husband. But she says like, no, we didn't even talk about my dad at all. And they're like, tell us about this plan for you to go to school in Switzerland. And she says, like, of course my dad was fighting that. He knew that I didn't want to go. And my mom was, like, trying to sort of, like, force it force it to happen. So, meanwhile, we get a scene at the medical examiner who confirms that Laura was dead before she her body was in the water. And some, like, water experts show up and tell them that based upon the currents of the river or whatever... Uh, They're able to pinpoint her location of where her body would have been dumped, and uh, it pretty much rules out the uh, (laughs) ex-husband, to quote Briscoe, unless he had a speedboat, because his house was, like, too far away from town to make this work. So she was actually dumped about 10 blocks from her house. So now they're thinking maybe it's somebody like the daughter or or the current husband. So they go and talk to the family maid, and she says that the ex-husband was a jerk, but the new husband was great. Uh, They met at, like, a Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and he helped her to overcome her addiction to pills. And then they're, they're running through what they have been told are the events of the night, you know, 
husband was out till one, Maggie was home alone, and the maid was like, no, that you can't have that right. Like, Maggie is never allowed to be home alone, which is, again, she's 17. Uh, but she says Laura would never have allowed her to be home alone. The husband, supposedly that he, you know, he had told the police that he was working that night. He works as a painter. So they go and talk to the person at the job that he was supposedly doing that night. And the owner of that house that he's supposed to be painting is like, I fired him. He, like, left in the middle of the job and didn't finish and, like, didn't come back. So this house that he was supposed to be painting at the time that his current wife disappeared, he was not there. But he does tell him that uh, this current husband, Steve Martell, has a apartment that he runs his business out of, which is uh, news to the police because they had been told that he just, you know, lived in the house with Laura Madsen. So they head over to his apartment uh, slash office and talk to a staff member uh, or a member of his painting crew and he says that, you know, he hasn't been around much since his wife died, but uh, the police kind of pressure him. And he says, like, yeah, I knew Steve was cheating on his wife, Laura, um, with some brunette. and Or, like, he had been cheating with a bunch of women. The latest one was some brunette. And then we get a weird scene where they go to a bar nearby. I'm not sure how they get pointed to this bar, but... Uh, the ex-husband used to have a drinking problem, and they go to this bar to, I guess, see if he was there that night. And the bartender says, like, oh, yeah, he came in. Uh, he didn't get any alcohol. He just came in and got some club soda, and then he went to the restroom, and he left through the back. And they're, mm -hmm. like, through the back. And then they go check it out, and there's an alley back there where he could have parked his car. And then the check the dumpsters, which have been emptied, so there's nothing inside of them. But, by the way, while they're checking the dumpsters, they are, like, running their hands all along the dumpsters. Yeah. And all I could think was, like, who voluntarily touches a dumpster like that? Like, I would use my elbow... Maybe I'm just a germ freak. I would never touch a trash can like that. Um, We go to a dumpster every day for our trash, for our complex, uh -huh. and I... It's very well maintained. I don't even like touching the lid to that dumpster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, she, so, but anyway, they find magically there is like a scrap of fabric that is stuck to the dumpster and so it's dumb. like a canvas drop cloth fabric and it's got a piece of paint on it. So they're like, oh, this must be it. And paint. they think like maybe he like dumped her body. It was just like weirdly coincidental. Beyond. <laughs> yeah. That... Of all of the stuff in this dumpster, that was the one thing that didn't get taken with the, the trash. A so, scrap of fabric. Right. <laughs> that miraculously matches the canvas of a drop cloth. So, da 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 da. So they think that the their current theory is that the wife found out that he was skipping work, cheating on her, and that she had tracked him down, confronted him about the cheating, and that he had killed her because of it. So they go and talk to Kincaid to see if they have enough for an arrest warrant. And she says, uh, not enough for an arrest warrant, but I think with all the lies that the husband has told so far, it's enough for a search warrant. So they do a search on the apartment and they find a blood stain on the carpet outside the bath outside the bathroom that looked like uh, somebody's like f sort of like footprint, not like a footprint, but like it looks like somebody had blood on their foot and then stepped on the carpet. Mm hmm. And then they also find some blood 
in the tile of the grout or the grout of the tile and a thumbprint of blood on the soap dish. So they're like, okay, you know, this, we're going to bring the husband in for questioning. He says he doesn't, didn't kill Laura and he said he wasn't home, but like Maggie would know what happened. Like maybe, maybe she like cut herself while she was shaving or something. Like his, his whole explanation is like, it's a bathroom and we lived there. And so that blood could have been from any time. And it was at this point that I was like, they went back to a scene with Sarah Paulson, who is a brunette in this episode. And I was like, oh, gross. Is this whole storyline going to be he's sleeping with his stepdaughter? Mm. So that I, I just wanted to flag that because that does end up being the case. And I was like, oh, this is so, so gross. Yeah. So they try to get something out of Sarah Paulson. And she says that she lied to them. She didn't get home at nine. She got home at 12. And Steve had dropped her off, and her mom wasn't home, and Steve had just come home later. And they're like, what are you talking about? Why would Steve have dropped you off? And she tells them that mom always treated him like a servant, but I love him. And then my next note in all capitals is gross. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And by the way, uh, I know that he didn't murder anyone that I'm aware of, but I, the, when I was trying to guess if this was be- based on a specific case, I was like, is this based on, um, oh shit, now, I, now his name has fallen out of my head. Uh, Woody, not Woody. Um, yeah. Woody Allen? Woody Allen. Yes. Um. Thank you. Um, for some reason, my brain was only serving up Woody Harrelson and I was like, that is not the person I'm thinking. <laughs> no. <laughs> so... The DAs have a little convo, and McCoy is wondering if they, if Maggie, aka Sarah Paulson, and the stepdad co-conspired in her mother's death because uh, Sarah Paulson is the recipient of her mother's fortune when she passes away. So they go and arrest Martel for the murder of Laura Madsen and decide to try to poke holes in Sarah Paulson's concert alibi because she, again, had said she was at a concert that night. So they go to her school, which appears to be kind of like a uh, like a Catholic girls' school, and the principal or whoever this administrator is that they're talking to is like when Kincaid asks, asks about the concert, she says, "Oh, it was a Chopin recital," and I was like, "That is not a concert, <laughs> uh, not the same thing." No. Uh, and Kincaid asks, like, was she there the whole evening? And this person says, like, oh, no, Maggie left before the first intermission. Like, she was only there for a little while. And so they talked to one of her friends who was at the concert. And her friend is swinging for the fences with her acting, by the way. But mm-hmm. I, as far as I could tell, had no acting credits mm-hmm. after this. She says that, uh, you know, Maggie was supposedly feeling unwell Uh, Or that's what the principal had been told. But the friend is like, oh, Maggie was fine. I, like, made up the lie about her going to the bathroom so that she could, like, sneak off and be with her boyfriend. And then she basically says that Maggie's mom was, like, super controlling. And uh, she, she, as the friend, had, like, loaned Maggie sexy clothes to meet up with her boyfriend. And they're like, do you still have them? Because apparently Maggie had given them back. And she's like, yeah. So she gives these clothes that she had loaned to Maggie, Sarah Paulson. And in the next scene, Kincaid says that forensics had found bloodstains on the pantyhose that had matched the blood samples at the apartment. So now it's looking like Sarah Paulson uh, is potentially involved in the murder of her mother. 
Dun, dun, dun. So Kincaid and McCoy have her arrested. And by the way, they Logan and Briscoe go and pick her up. And it's just interesting. Like, they ju- they don't handcuff her. They just, like, gently place her in the backseat of the car, mm-hmm. uh, which is so different from how they treat so many other people on the show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> same so, thing. I felt the uh, same the way last week. Last week's episode when they handcuffed the guy. Uh, oh, is the, I didn't watch last week still because oh, you said it was so terrible. Yeah, it's the same thing. Like the the white guy that they originally arrest because they think he's uh-huh. involved. When they scare him to try to rough him up, it's uh-huh. so different the way they do it versus the people of color on the show because they. I'm, I'm sure it's very pantomime. Like they sort of like yeah. pick him up and like put his hands behind his back. He's not being jerked around. They're just being loud while they do it, and then he just like sits back yeah. down. The other we've yeah. seen spitting in faces, we've seen smacking in faces. I think we even seen a sandwich being shoved down someone's face. I'm pretty sure yes. We've definitely seen people like thrown up against walls and all kinds Ugh. of stuff. Yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> um, her lawyer meets with McCoy uh, to kind of you know in the typical like your charges are nonsense and they're like we're gonna win this trial scene that they mm-hmm. always do yeah um imagine and... next time this happens like the show just ends half hour early they're like okay we'll yeah. take a deal you're right we have to okay exactly <laughs> dun, dun. <laughs> that would be amazing um while they're having this conversation though mccoy gets a phone call from martel the husband uh the new husband and his lawyer off asks for a plea deal for the husband saying that he'll plead guilty to obstruction of justice if they drop the murder charges against him because he has the true story for them, Mm. which he tells them that this thing with Maggie of, like, them being in a relationship or whatever is all in her head. And, like, she had a a big crush on him, and he never reciprocated it, and he never touched her. And he says that the night that the mom died slash disappeared, that he... That he had come home, Maggie had gotten all dressed up, and uh, when he, or sorry, Maggie had gotten all dressed up, and then when he came home at 1 a.m., he found his wife, Laura, dead on the bathroom floor, and Maggie was crying because apparently, according to him, Laura, the mom, had accused Maggie of being a slut, and there had been a fight, and Maggie pushed her mother, and her mother slipped and, you know, hit her head and bled out, and... Uh, Maggie said that if he didn't help her cover it up, she'd tell the police that he had done it. They ask where he was while this supposed fight between Maggie and her mother was going on, and he says that he was with another woman that he cares about very much. So they go and talk to her, and she gives him an alibi and says, like, yes, uh, we've been to, we've been sort of, like, seeing each other for five months. We That night he was over here for dinner. And she says after it was sometime after 12 that he left. So she is giving him an alibi for the time of Laura Madsen's death slash murder. So they bring uh, Sarah Paulson up on trial and he testifies and sticks to the story that he was at dinner with this other woman that he was sleeping with. And he came home to find that Maggie had pushed her mother and she slipped and died. And Maggie, you know, sitting at the defense table starts crying and they request a recess Uh, Because she had been pretty convinced that Steve loved her and was not going to, like, leave her out, like, hanging to dry. Is that the phrase? Leave her hanging? Hang her out to dry. Hang her out to dry. So they have a little short recess where Maggie and her lawyer meet with the DAs. And she says, 
uh, I didn't imagine things between them. She says that she and Steve had slept together. This was the third time they'd slept together. And he told me that he loved me. And he says that when she got home, uh, when her mom got home, her mom busted her. And she said she just wanted to rub it in her mom's face that she was sleeping with Steve. And Steve came home and Laura confronted him and wanted him out of the house and started like pushing and hitting him. And she says that Steve pushed her back. She hit her head and and was like bleeding out. And Steve had told her that the cops would say they both did it. So she had to help him cover it up. Uh, and so he told me everything I needed to do. And she says they cleaned up the blood and Steve took her mom's body away. Yeesh. And then we get a very, very weird scene where sort of the like crucial evidence that proves which one of them is telling the truth is they have Sarah Paulson, who again is 17 years old, in graphic detail recount the the first time that she and Steve had sex together, which apparently is just like the way that this other woman and Steve had been having sex. And so this woman is like, I don't need to hear anymore. She's telling the truth. And so that's how we know that Sarah Paulson's version of events is correct, that Steve had pushed the mother, she had died, and then he basically forced her into covering it all up with him. Uh, And so uh, they offer him manslaughter, too, for the accidental death of uh, Laura Madsen. And that is the end of the episode. Well done. Wasn't that concluding scene fucking weird yeah the the graphic description and then she's like describing it and i think when someone goes to the other woman sound familiar i was like yes yes all right gross it was so strange it was a little not a (laughs) yes because the whole thing was like he's a blue collar painter and marrying into this wealthy family and this woman he was sleeping with was also wealthy and and like he has this like inferiority complex thing so it was like all about how you know whatever it was just strange but that was the evidence that proved which one of them was telling the truth and which was lying i can't and honestly yeah. every time i heard the word martell i thought of tracy martell <laughs> <laughs> oh, tracy. oh well are you ready um probably not i hope guesses? it's less gross than this story i mean <laughs> other than woody allen uh other than Woody Allen, any any murder where the, he's sleeping? I, I feel like, is this a big case? So this was based on three different cases, and oh. one is big, and that's the one I'm going to do. Uh, one okay. I'd never heard of, and I and then one was me, me, medium. <laughs> I think if I sat here long enough, I probably would think of a few more, but uh, none are coming to mind immediately. Okay, well... Uh, one of the inspirations was the Jessica Wiseman, Douglas Christopher Thomas case, which I'd never heard of. And yeah. I looked it up. There's not a whole lot. Uh, it's about a okay. girl who has her boyfriend, teenage boyfriend, shoot her parent and kill them. And then wow. he gets the death penalty, even though he's like 15, because at the time it was still legal. Yikes. Yeah. Uh, the next one I almost did was the Anne Scripps case. And Anne Scripps, I believe, was an heiress who was uh, abused terribly by her first husband or second husband, and everybody knew it, and it was, like, reported to the police, and the kids tried to get him away, but no one would help her because they were married, I think. And then 
I think he ultimately kills her, and it's a whole it's a, huh. a series of terrible things. Um, okay. I think it's worth doing another day, but anyway, the case I chose to do, which is the inspiration of this, is the story of Amy Fisher. Amy Fisher? Wait. A.K.A. The Long Island Lolita. A.K.A. How I'm going to present it more is the story of Mary Jo Butterfuco. Oh! Oh my gosh. Okay. All right. Yeah. So... I, you know, I read the usual things. I thought this was going to be a huge case, and I was going to tell you to, like, edit yours down or something. Yeah. It really, this whole case takes place over the course of 10 months. The whole okay. thing, beginning to end from, like, in in some ways. But then there's so much more that happens. So okay. I'm going to attempt to tell the story more about Mary Jo Botafuco and go from there because... That's usually not the uh, the viewpoint you get. Yeah. And, yeah, so in, in preparation for this and in addition to the usual, like, research, I also found a podcast last night, which I which is why I wanted to record a little later today because I wanted to hear it. It gotcha. is called You're Wrong About. And oh, yeah, I've heard I, of that podcast. I'd never heard of it or or listened to it, and it's it's been on for a long time, so – I loved it, the episode I listened to. Uh, I don't have the episode number, but it's from December 3rd, 2018. It's simply titled Amy Fisher. And, I think. Um, the, most of their titles early on is just what you're wrong about. So, like, you're wrong about Amy Fisher. I think I listened to one of their episodes in preparation for the Lorena Bobbitt case. Oh, they, they definitely have that. They have a lot of really good – I've never heard it before. I'm definitely subscribing and listening now. Uh, yeah. It's two hosts – hosts sarah and mike and they basically you know tell you facts about things that we all think we know which is kind of what a lot of us are doing these days trying to understand things we thought we understood (laughs) totally yeah so anyway just want to shout out to them it was really really great and um i did pull a quote from one of amy fisher's biographies um i pulled it from that episode so i didn't read the book i got the quote from their episode so thank you okay (laughs) <laughs> so let's start. Uh, Mary Jo Connery was born on May 15th, 1955 in New York. She grew up in Nassau County and uh, mostly lived in Massapequa. That's on Long Island. And okay. it's a very, like, suburban, suburban area, uh, even now, but back then especially. Uh, she went to Massapequa High School, and Mary Jo – there's not a lot about her early life – uh, she doesn't – she's, like, infamously, I would say, not spoken about her, like, family, like, f- parents and sister yeah. and brother and all that. They sometimes speak out in interviews and stuff, but they're pretty private. So okay. in respects to that, I think that's why you can't find the information. And uh, we all know what happened in this case. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure all of you know what's going on. So not bearing any leads this time around or anything like that. <laughs> Um, but let's just say, you know, Mary Jo had a pretty happy life and a a very, very close family. In high school, she meets Joey Butterfuco in the ninth grade when they are in summer school together because they both failed social studies. Uh, Hmm. the two get along pretty instantly. He's like the class clown, so very charming, disarming to her. And she is described by all people as like a gentle girl Great values, pretty mild-mannered, and a great sense of humor. The two started dating pretty soon after they met in 
freshman year of high school. They were dating all throughout their high school career after that. Mm-hmm. And after high school, they got engaged. And within a year, they were married in 1977. Uh, That was a year after they got engaged, 1977. Joey was 21, and Mary Jo, now Mary Jo Botafuco, formerly Connery, is 22. Okay. They're living a pretty nice life. He works at his dad's auto body shop. I believe it was called Complete Auto Body or Complete Auto Body and Repair. And she worked at a bank, and they they actually were saving money and doing pretty well for themselves. So Joey Botafuco, who is he? There's a zillion, zillion places you can find out all about Joey Botafuco, mostly from his own words. Uh, So you could find out the, the details about him if you're interested. But Joey was born March 11th, 1956. He grew up in the same Nassau County neighborhoods as Mary Jo, and then they went to the same Massapequa High School, of course, where they met. And he's always been described by every single article, entity, whatever it is, besides like some more recent ones as like life of the party, class clown, larger than life, gregarious. He is even in um, articles that are, like, very cruel about, like, his behavior or that are not <laughs> trying to make him seem like everybody's buddy, he's still, right. like, the class clown. Oh, he was so fun. So, anyway, you could find out a lot more information about them out there, but one thing I thought was kind of interesting is that the name Butifuco is, uh, it translates from fire thrower. Oh. Interesting. Uh, isn't that the name of the play in... I don't really want to do the work today. Oh, that's fire something else. Uh, fire fire seeker or fire bringer or something. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> um, all right. So as I back to the, the couple, they get married in 1977 in their early 20s. They buy a house with their savings from their jobs. And they they live a very cookie cutter lifestyle in in. This very suburban, very sought-after community. It was pretty new at the time, the area they were living in. And it was like that, like, come to Massapequa, have a life away mm-hmm. from everything else. Uh, they have two children. One, the first child they have is named Paul. And he's described a, by his mom, Mary Jo, as sweet and sensitive. And then a f- couple of years later, in 1983, they have their daughter, Jessica, who goes by Jesse, and she's the more rambunctious one. Paul, to this day, has distanced himself very, 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 very much from the limelight and okay. completely from his father. He's changed his last name. He does not go by the Botafuco name. He's never interviewed. He's never spoken to. He prefers to remain, like, out of all of this. And so you're not going to hear much about him here uh, out of respect. I didn't even try to, like, look. Okay. So uh, Paul is the older brother, though. Jesse's the younger one. She talks quite a bit. She's very, very, very vocal in these days about how she feels. So Joey Buttafuoco, during this time, during their whole relationship, was really pretty heavy into drugs, particularly cocaine. And even when his wife was pregnant and she wanted him to kind of like simmer down, he couldn't do it. He always says that she was kind of like a light user of whatever he was using at the time, but... You know, for her, it would be like, oh, I did, like, a, a, a line, and I, I don't do it again for, like, three months or something. Yeah. But so, so for her, having kids was very easy to not 
succumb to her temptations. He couldn't do it. No matter how many times he tried, he went to rehab a couple of times in and out. And uh, somewhere between the birth of his son, Paul, and his daughter, Jessica, he went back to rehab again. He went there. He stayed there for quite some time. He sort of got clean. It didn't last. And then when Jesse was around one or two, he went back to rehab. And she remembers that time even like it was weird. And uh, he came back and seemed to have it under control. It It's, you know, unclear about whether that's true or not. But Jesse was only like three years old by the time he was back in their lives again. And the family stayed together and they lived a really idyllic life, according to Jessica. Um, mm-hmm. She loved her life. She knows now that there were challenges, but as a kid, it was great. Nassau County, where they lived, was like suburban paradise, as I mentioned, and most of both of their families lived close by, so there were tons of extended family nearby. Uh, the house that they bought was right next to a beach club, um, and honestly... When Mary Jo describes it, she says it was the best times of her life. She she was living her dream, her fantasy, uh, this great life where she knew all the neighbors and everyone in town knew their names. Everyone loved her husband and her her kids. And like to give you an idea of how much influence Joey had over the neighborhood, mm-hmm. he was once driving his boat because they they lived light, they lived nice. He was driving yeah. his boat around the harbor of Long Island at some sort of like event, and he was being wild so he got pulled over by the what marina police or whatever it is mm-hmm. and um the this is on camera the entire beach starts chanting let joe go let joe go until they eventually let him go <laughs> just because everybody loved him wow so that is the setting of the scene of the lifestyle they were living okay so on may 19th 1992 mary joe botafuco is going about her business, living her life. Her kids are going to school. This was the first time she was ever letting them ride their bikes to school without any assistance. Uh-huh. Um, her youngest daughter, her, Jesse, her daughter, is in third grade, and her older brother is a couple years older, so he's the he's in charge. And they were so excited. They, they go to leave, and a couple minutes later, Paul comes home and tells um, – he doesn't announce it to – to Jesse, she's like stops and she's like, "Where are you going?" And he's like, "I'll be right back." He goes back home and Mary Jo is like, "What are you doing? You're going to be late for school." And he's mm-hmm. like, "I don't know, I don't know." And she's like, "Did you forget something? Like, what's going on?" And he's like, "I don't know. Something's just not right." And he's, like, she's like, "Okay, well, we don't have time to think about it. We'll talk about it after school. Go to school." Um, and when she talks about this, she's like, "I still have chills about this to this moment mm. because time passes a couple of hours, maybe." And the doorbell rings. So Mary Jo goes to the door. She was previously painting lawn furniture out back. I mean, this is like Mary This is like Dick Van Dyke. Yeah. <laughs> like, who, what life is this? So she's painting lawn furniture out back. She hears the doorbell ring. She goes to the front door. And uh, this is her description of the interaction she has with the person at the door. She And by the way, the way she talks, she's... Very, like, hey, what's going on? She reminds me of, like, the kind of, like, um, woman who, when you're a kid, you go to the, your friend's house, and it's their mom, mm. and she just yeah. treats you like a, her kid. Not like, I'm a cool mom, yeah. but she's just like, hey, what do you want to <laughs> eat? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. She's very that, very easy to talk to. So she goes to the door, and she says to this teenage girl who's standing there, hey, what's up? What's going on? 
And she says, are you Mrs. Botafuco? And she says, yeah, what's, what can I do for you? And she says, I have to tell you something. Your husband is having an affair with my little sister. And she Oof. goes, your little sister? How old are you? Because she's a teenager. Yeah. And the girl says she's 19. And she's like, how old is your sister? And she says 16. Ugh. And she's incredibly dismissive of, of this girl at the front stoop. She thinks this is the most preposterous thing she's ever seen. She thinks it's a prank. There's like a car waiting for the girl outside, like catty corner parked re- weird. So she's like, okay, listen, I mean, I don't, I don't know what you want me to say about this. Like, what do you want? I, I, I'm, what's going on? And she says, I have proof. I have proof. And she pulls out this complete auto body shirt. Um, it's like the advertisement for her husband's business. Mm-hmm. And she says, look, I have this shirt. It was in my little sister's bed. And she was, like, thinking in her head, this is ridiculous. And she says that she sort of, like, made fun of her. And she's like, you're making a little sister's bed? You're 19 years old? Like, this is what – is, what is all of this? Yeah. And she says that the girl got a little annoyed. And she was like, what is your name? Who are you? And she says her name is Anne-Marie. And she goes, okay, where do you live, Anne-Marie? And she points off in a direction and she says, I live on, like, Blank Street, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But Mary Jo knows the neighborhood. She's been here forever. And there's no – she's making it up. Okay. There's no street in that direction called that street. There is a street in the neighborhood called that street totally on the other side of town. So she's like, listen, um, she was over it. She's, I don't know what you want. Thanks for coming by. She's got a paint can out back. You know, she's doing stuff. She yeah. turns around and she closes. She's about to like open the door and go back inside because she's standing on her front stoop. Yeah. And she is shot Ugh. right under her ear and falls to the ground. The shooter was the teenage girl who turns around, runs to a car, and is driven away. <sighs> Immediately, neighbors call 911, and they they t- tell everybody, what ha- they, here's what happened, here's a description of the girl, I don't know what's going on, blah, blah, blah. Here's a description of the car. Uh, neighbors are calling Joey, he's at work, and they're like, come home, come home, come home. Something happened. He gets home to his wife, to, to his house completely, crime scene, a zillion, like, cop cars there's a helicopter on the beach right behind their house because the beach club is nearby and he goes over to where the helicopter is because he can't get into his house and he sees his wife mary jill on a gurney being like medevaced or whatever it's called like helicoptered out and over to a hospital (laughs) he has no idea what's going on still he doesn't know what happened um everyone tells him what happened she's been shot we don't know what's going on it's serious. Her family is called. They're all freaking out. They're at the hospital now. So Mary Jo is at the hospital. She's being operated on. She's being seen. Her sister, her mom, her dad, and Joe are all in the waiting room at this point. They Initially, they can't say much, but they say it's very serious. So they want to prepare them for the worst case scenarios. And the scenarios that they're presented with for Mary Jo is that she will be either or and. Blind, paralyzed, deaf, or she will die. And wow. they need to have surgery. It's dangerous, but they need to, or she will die, or she will be comatose. So they make the decision to go have a surgery. She's under for seven hours, and she she survives, as we know. She comes to, and she says that it was like the movies, like you see in the movies. Like everything was fuzzy and sort of distorted and sort of like going in and out. But she could hear the nurse screaming, like, Mary Jo, you're awake, Mary Jo. Instantly, they want her to write down details. What happened? Do you remember? And she does. So she writes down the details she remembers. She writes down teenage girl, 19, Anne Marie, brown hair, lavender streak, total auto body, 
or whatever it's called, complete auto body t-shirt. I've heard multiple accounts separate, but either Joey Butterfuco, now he says, oh, I knew that shirt instantly. I got a new print of it for my job, so I knew it was new, and I had only given it to one person, which was uh, this man named Elliot Fisher, and he Mm -hmm. has a daughter named Amy Fisher who matches the description, so I know it's her. There's other claims that say at that time he was like, I, that's Amy Fisher. I know I gave that shirt to her. So, hmm. I mean, let's not – I don't even think we have to pretend like he, he gave it to her dad. I'm sorry. Like, yeah. I'm sorry. After everything comes out at the end of this, if you – I don't think anyone believes that. But anyway, he knew who it was. He, he identifies her as Amy Fisher to the police. Immediately, the newspaper gets news of this half she's like – you know, recovering and the Long Island newspapers and New York newspapers all say headlines like, quote, teen other woman charged in slay try because she is, oh, sorry, let me hold on. Let me, I skipped ahead a little bit. So they instantly know who she is. They go find her. She's literally on the road still. Police pull her over. Um, She's 17 years old. Her name is Amy Fisher. They're like, okay, this is the girl we're looking for. This is exactly who Joey Botafuco said it was. And, you know, she's arrested and brought into custody. They question her for 12 hours. Wow. And she's 17. She she says the same story over and over. She's lying at first. She eventually is, is like, telling them, like, I I don't know why I'm here. Like, I just want to go home. Can I go home after this? What time can I go home? Eventually, they're like, you can go home. When you tell us the truth. And she's like, what do I have to do to go home? So they basically tell her that she has to sign a confession. She signs the confession and says, can I go home? And they're like, no, you're going to jail. And yeah. she's like, oh, what the hell? So um, this is obviously hits the press. The newspapers say things like, quote, teen, other woman charged in slay try. And it's it's all over the place. Her parents, while she's in custody, don't know where she is. And they find out Sorry. 9 a.m. the next morning that she uh, is in custody because she's 16 what's, and at this time she's considered an adult in this state. What's the second half of that word that you're saying? Slay what? Slay try. Like, like attempt. attempt, T-R-Y? Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Sorry. Yeah. I was no, like thinking okay. like tri-state area or try like three oh. people. <laughs> it was like... No, no, no. <laughs> they just they weren't very creative, I guess. Uh, it's at this point when this hits the newspaper like this, that Mary Jo says, quote, this phenomenon, this phenomenon starts to happen. It's not about me anymore. It's not about the person who got shot, assassinated in front of her own home. It's about Joey and Amy. Hmm. So let's talk about Amy Fisher a little bit. Amy Fisher was born August 24th, 1974. Two parents, Rose and Elliot Fisher, who were very hard workers They owned an upholstery store that they worked at six days a week. And as a result of them trying to build this American dream for Amy, she grew up very lonely and uh, was an only child, usually without her parents at home. Early on, she was growing up in Wanta, which is an area near Nassau County. County. It's very nice. But then when she is 13, they move to the neighborhood of Merrick when they're doing a little bit better. And it's very fancy. It's like the upper crust area of Nassau County, uh, close close to Massapequa. In Merrick, she finds out that, like, 
there's this other way to live and there's fancy things and she's she becomes it's alluring very, to her. It's very alluring. And in the podcast episode I listened to, they kind of talk about how they're everyone sort of thinks they're middle class, generally speaking. Yes. Because you're yeah. rating yourself versus like the ten people that are better off than you and ten people that are worse off than you financially or, you know, society wise, whatever. So yeah. everyone sort of like feels like they're middle class and that if you have the certain personality type, you are always seeking to be better than the 10 people more than you, and that'll never go away. Yeah. So they kind of describe this kind of feeling with Amy, and she does talk about this in her in her books. She's had two, two biographies. I, I think they're autobiographies, but the first one is allegedly completely ghostwritten, and the second one she's, she's um, like, co-written. Okay. Um, all the newspapers that are talking about Amy <laughs> – at everything I've read about Amy, have this like nasty talk about her grades in school. She was a fine, she was a normal student, but they yeah. of course had to find anything they possibly could about the sixteen-year-old, seventeen-year-old girl. She had a pretty normal life when she's sixteen years old. Her parents buy her a car, and uh, the newspapers say, and the articles and stuff that I read insinuate that this makes her like an indulged teenager. Hmm. I I mean, my parents helped me get a really cheap car when I was 16. A lot of yeah, parents I, buy their kids a car at 16. Whether people agree with yeah. that or not, that's not uncommon. No, I I crashed my grandma's Mustang and was given the option of paying to repair it or paying and buying it from them for the same amount. So I just like had a Mustang with a busted headlight forever. For <laughs> yeah, so I, I, that's a, that's kind of like the narrative that's out there spoiled 16 year old girl um that's what kind of things run away with but it's yeah i see nothing else to support that um yeah her parents were very upper middle class until they weren't and then they still worked really hard so she does attribute this sort of environment to a lot of her molding um and some of the things that we don't hear about in the press at the time but that she's spoken up about after this is that as a child she was abused by her father and she kept it a secret from her mother. And later on in life, her mother revealed to her that she was also abused by her father. They they both suffered in silence, not knowing that their father was the man that they both lived with was abusing the other. That's so that's cool. hard. It's hard to grow up with. So yeah. she's not exactly who people are believing she is at this time. Either way, um, she says that the whole reason she met Joey, and this part he agrees to, is that, you know, she's a teenager. She gets this car. At when she's 16 years old from her parents, she gets into an accident. She's okay, but it, it's kind of busted up. So they go to this auto body shop that her dad always went to, um, and that's where Joey Botafuco works. It's his family's business. Mm -hmm. And uh, he is 35, and again, she is 16. Mm -hmm. uh, while they're there, Joey, he doesn't own it, so he's not the person that greeted them. He just works on the cars there. So when he sees them, he doesn't realize that um, they're related, okay. the dad and daughter. So he goes over to Amy's dad and says to him, hey, oh, what an God. ass on that one. Ugh. And he, he says, she's my daughter and she's 16. I'm surprised he like, didn't get socked. Right, right. And he's like, ooh, sorry, and kind of like walks away. But he's working with them. So they still like banter with him and stuff like that. And Also, his, maybe not the kind of thing you should say it, 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 period but especially at your business hello 
hello. And, but it doesn't seem to matter because the family still patronized the shop many, many times after this. So, well, and I guess the dad wasn't exactly a peach himself. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. She, um, so they both describe this meeting as like they banter together at the shop and she's sort of like taken by him. She thinks he's cute and he's an older guy. She's pretty lonely and it feels like someone's showing her attention. Um, yeah. And the thing about this that's bothersome, it, there's a lot of things about this that are bother- bothersome. He's 35 and she's 16. And yeah. all of the things I watched about this, this, no matter what, how you feel about what happens, that is not okay. That he's, no, would he's be pursuing her. a 16 year old. Exactly. Exactly. And all of the articles and things I watch and see, besides the podcast episode, have experts or people who wrote books or whatever saying things like, oh, they, ha-, this is quotes. They had sort of a banter. Joey's got a big personality. <laughs> or, or the relationship oh and he says this about that about them because he still asserts that the account that Amy gives about their relationship where it goes is false and that it was mm-hmm. very bare nothing um mm-hmm. he says quote the relationship went where it went no big deal like no big deal wow and uh when they ask like when asked further about it later on he says it was inappropriate and that's as far as I'm going to go with it well, oh, thank you, Joey. Thank you for that. Uh, yeah. What a wow. How brave. Uh, so, yeah. um anyway, the relationship between the two of them at this point is like just a spark, right? It's nothing. It's just a meeting. But mm-hmm. she brings her car in again later on, not much longer cuz she does get into another accident, and when she gets there, he is she brings it in. He is the person who's there who's helping her. He fixes her car. Um, it's going to take a minute, so he drives her home. She invites him in, and this is all what they both say. And then she says that she wants to show him a fish tank in her room. Her parents aren't home. They work six days a week. And Mm -hmm. uh, so he says, sure. She says it was innocent. She literally wanted to show him a fish tank. Anyway, they go into the room. He throws her on the bed, and they begin kissing, and then they have sex for the first time. Um, this is on July 2nd, 1991, when they have sex for the first time, and she says it's the best sex she's ever had for a long time, and that he, she did consent, but, or, and, that she kind of felt like she had to in the moment. Yeah. Because she wanted... She was 16. To, yeah, and she wanted him, she wanted him to be with her. She wanted yeah. him to, like, want her and like her. She wanted her to think, him to think she was cool. And this is what she thought she had to do, I think. So yeah. she 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 does it, and um, he's proud of it. He brags about it to other people, and they begin secretly dating. Um, he claims that she brought the car in about 12 times before anything even happened at all. She w- says she went in two times, once with her dad and the second time. Um, and he also claims that they never had sex. He claims that... Yeah. That never even happened. So we're already having a big difference. Um, He claims they didn't have any sort of relationship. What she says is that after this, they start to go to – they have a relationship of, quote, fancy restaurants and cheap hotels. And Mm -hmm. she describes in her her interviews and her books that, like, she was so naive at the time and so, like, 
closed in that the restaurant he brought her to was the first time she saw cloth cloth napkins. And she thought, wow, mm-hmm. fancy, you know? So mm-hmm. she doesn't have a real realistic view of the world around her. Yeah. What she doesn't know about Joey and what is not talked about a lot is that Joey was working part-time for an escort service called ABBA Escorts. And what okay. he would do for them is he would find girls for them to employ and then Uh, if they became employed he would get a cut of whatever they made he is dating amy and Mm -hmm. he says hey i got a great opportunity for you it's like dating you date older guys you make a lot of money it's it's just like providing company for like old lonely rich guys it's awesome Mm -hmm. it's legit you'll love it and she's like okay cool sure so yeah. she starts working there, and pretty quickly she realizes that it's not just that, and that she's going to be, that her clients are going to be expecting sex at the end of the at the end of these dates, at the very least. And so yeah, she does so. Um, the podcast just used a term. I don't think it's like an official term, but it's a term that they use that I think describes it pretty well. Gosh, I should have written it down, but it's like um, surprised consent. I think they used. And it's like this idea of like, yes, she's giving consent, even though she's 16 and that's not something she can really do. Um, right. But even in that way, it's it's a sort of surprised consent. Like, oh, I think I, I, I'm going to do this because I think I have to do this and I have to make a split second decision. You yeah. know? So that's kind of how she just, they describe her maybe first encounter as an escort. And then she continued doing it, just thinking this is what it is. And she yeah. charged people $100 per um, client because she was so naive that she didn't even know she, what to charge. And Joey was secretly getting a cut of this because he hired her. She never knew this. Yeah. So the relationship is already sort of like a boss employee without her even – you yeah. know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's I mean, really it's, fucked up. Yeah, it's like pimping her essentially. Yeah. And she she's having a hard time with this because she's 16. She's in school. She has a beeper, and this is kind of like the when you have a beeper at this time, you have a beeper. Like, you're official. Yeah. You are, like, yeah. the official teenager. Um, yeah. So she's walking around with a beeper that he she has for work, and she feels very powerful. She's among yeah. classmates that she doesn't connect with, that she's not friends with, and she's finally like, I'm kind of special. Yeah. I'm something that they don't know. I have this whole secret life. And so when people would ask her about her beeper, she would say it's for work. It's for work. She even told a few people that she was an escort. Mm-hmm. So she's being very abused, very oppressed, but also having this false sense of power. Yeah. Um, again, he just claims none of this is true. She's nuts. Uh, she became obsessed with him from when she first met him. She constantly would go to the shop trying to, trying to seduce him, and he resisted. He's a married man. Okay. She says that he never asked her to kill... Mary Jo. She's not always said this. She's made altering comments over the years. She's even said in, like, televised interviews that he showed her how to hold the gun and stuff. But ultimately what she says these days in her most recent accounts is that she didn't – he didn't tell her to kill Mary Jo. What she, what he did was, like, kind of plant seeds in her, in her mind along the way by saying things like they'd be out on a boat. And he would say something like when they were having a great time, one of these days I'm just going to take Mary out on this boat and throw her over and we can have our lives together 
or yeah. one of these days we're just going to be together. I should just hire a hitman and get it taken care of. Like things like that <laughs> over time until it was like, oh, I this maybe is I what he do wants. This. this is yeah. what he wants. We could be together. This is the ultimate sign of getting approval for him. Yeah. And again, this whole thing happens. So they sleep together for the first time on July 2nd, 1991. Amy is shot. Amy shoots Mary Jo on May 19th, 1992. Mm. It's less than a year. Yeah. Like, it's so quick. So the attack. The attack happens. Mary Jo survives because the bullet goes instead of through her brain. It's under – it's like through her side of her – it's under her ear. You could see, um, like, almost very directly under it. But instead of going through the brain, it went down her neck when it went into her body. And it wow. lodged next to her spinal cord, um, traveling downward, severing her carotid artery. The bullet is still in her body because mm-hmm. it, it got lodged so close to the spinal cord it's too risky to remove. Um, half of her face is paralyzed. She has wow. little to no hearing in her ear. And she, when she gets out of the hospital and she's recovered – because she's in and out of consciousness for the first three days she's there. She makes a recovery. She comes home. Everyone is all over her. Her house has 100 camera crews outside. She has no privacy from that moment on. And she weighs like 90 pounds because she's not been able to like really eat, be nourished. She's recovering. She could barely yeah. walk. She's on a cane. And there's news crew. Like it's, disgu- it's this disgusting shit we always see. Yeah. So – Amy Fisher is arrested after this uh, on attempted murder charges at first, but they're eventually scaled down to assault charges before Mm -hmm. trial. Again, she didn't expect to be arrested because Joey, when he would joke with her about these ideas and talked about us doing something together, he said, well, you'd always be better to do it anyway because they're not going to arrest a kid. (laughs) She thought she was going to be in trouble with her parents, worst case scenario. So when the police came... She was like, oh, what the hell? Yeah. They set the bail at $2 million, Oof. which is like one of the highest bails at the time because they right. think she's, she's 16. flight it's... risk. I was going to say, where is she going to go? The reason they think she's a flight risk is because there's a, um, a file. She ran away from home when she was younger. Her dad got really mad when he wrote the police report and said she was, like, out of control, out of court control teenager and stuff. So they say she's Ugh. a flight risk because she's run away from home as a teenager. Wow. Yeah. While she's trying to figure out how to get out on bail, she's actually able to get out because <laughs> it's $2 million bail. Her parents put mm-hmm. up the house, sell as much as they possibly can, get as much as they can together from their assets, and they are able to raise $1.2 million. Wow. They hire a lawyer who says, hey, I know exactly what we can do for the other $800,000. we are going to sell her life rights and get a book and movie deal, and that's going to pay for the rest. <laughs> so they do, and it does. Wow. $800,000 of her $2 million bail was paid by um, a deal for rights to her life for a book and movie. Wow. And that was very, very, very um, controversial, but very, very legal. During her time on bail, she was uh, she gets out, I think, within four months of, um, of posting, of, of being, uh, sorry, arrested. Okay. So while she's out on bail, the TV show A Current Affair broadcasts a 14-minute video 
allegedly showing Amy Fisher having sex with a client um, who secretly recorded her. His name is Peter DeRosa. He's 28 years old. He ordered her services three times, and then the second time he secretly filmed her in the hotel room and then sold it to A Current Affair, who broadcast it on primetime television. (sighs) The press goes absolutely insane, and that's when Long Long Island Lolita is born, or Lethal Lolita. The the press is out of control instantly. This went from, like, a local case to beyond national. Yeah. We find out during the prep for the trial and the trial that there's a man named Stephen Gleeman that Amy Fisher was involved with. He's a friend of hers, a friend of a friend. She knows mm-hmm. him through her coworker Chris. Um, the three of them work in a restaurant together. We find out that Stephen Gleeman has come forward and said that Amy Fisher tried to get him to kill Mary Jo for her, for her months ago before she did it herself wow he says that he was asked because chris was asked first and then chris comes forward and says yes i was asked i told her no that's not my bag but she he knew that steve the guy who comes forward first had a gun so he's like ask our coworker steve um steve was told by chris that if he said yes to her when she asked she'd have sex with him so he said sure (sighs) so (laughs) Um, on this alleged attempt, on this attempt, this is not alleged, this is, this is factual. Uh, this was months before they act, the actual attempt on Mary Jo's life. Mm-hmm. Steve drives Amy to the house. Mary Jo, it was so surreal for her and so insignificant. She did not connect this when, it, when she was actually shot, mm-hmm. but she had met Amy before because Steve drove her to her house. She rang the doorbell, and the plan was Steve was to wait in the car with the rifle. Amy was going to be distracting Mary Jo at the front, and then Steve was supposed to shoot from the car. And then they were going to run away. But when they got to the house, she pretended she was selling candy to raise money, and she had her last candy bar. And Mary Jo was like, no, I'm not interested, honey. I got candy up the wazoo. And she's like, no, please, it's my last candy bar. I'm just trying to do it. It's from Massapequa High School. And she's like, oh, God. She's like, all right, well, listen, that was my alma mater. Come in, I'll I'll give you a dollar. So she goes inside. She gives her a dollar, buys the candy bar, and they leave. Steve lost his nerve and couldn't get a clear shot. Mm. Um, And Mary Jo says she remembers that because when she looked at the candy bar where she went to go eat it and she turned it over, there was like a price sticker on it. And she was like, that girl ripped me off. She bought this from the store. (sighs) Yeah, 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 yeah. This comes out, of course, in the press it's being reported he's going to be a witness for the for the prosecution um so all of the newspapers are running stories like um on steve he becomes a household name and he's known as quote amy's horny hitman gross gross um both of them testify against amy at the trial and then what year this was oh i'm sorry 1993 i want to say let me look Oh, yeah. 1993 is, is when the trial is taking place. She was shot uh, towards summer of 1992, late spring. Okay. So um, 1993 is when the trial is happening. And uh, the actual driver for the successful shooting, not killing, of obviously, of Mary Jo, was a yeah. man named Peter Guagenti. And Amy had just met him a couple weeks before the crime through friends at, like, a you know, just a hangout. And she kind of 
heard that he was like a bad boy and had a gun and stuff, or he could get guns. So she just flat asked him, first time meeting him, hey, could you get me a gun? He says, yeah, I could do it. Like, how much, like, what kind of gun do you need? And she's like, I don't know. It's it's for this. And he's like, all right, give me 800 bucks. She gives him 800 bucks. He meets her uh, later on with a gun. And he agrees to also drive her. Uh, She goes to school on the morning of May 19th, 1992. That's when Mary Jo is shot. She goes to school that morning because she's a senior preparing for finals. Yeah. And uh, she gets up. She gets a sick pass from the nurse. Like, she wasn't feeling good to go home. She goes and is picked up by this uh, Steve guy. And I'm sorry, not Steve. uh, Peter. She goes and she's picked up by Peter outside the school. They they change his license plate. He gives her the – she has the gun. This is when she gets the gun from him. I'm sorry. And he drives her to Mary Jo's house in the middle of the day. By the way, Peter's charged for – because he agrees to testify against Amy, even though he's mm-hmm. very much involved, he sold her the gun, drove her there, knew what she was doing, helped her do with the whole thing, like conspiracy at least. Yeah. He's uh, takes a deal. He is charged with criminal sale of a weapon only and spends four months in jail. Wow. Four months. Mary Jo is disgusted by that. Yeah. So, um... Let's see. Oh, this is another detail. During the time that before the trial, uh, when Amy is out on bail, she's she's out for a few months, and she's told explicitly by her lawyer, do not talk to the press. Do not talk to the press. Whatever you say, they're going to twist it. She regrets this in retrospect because she says she never got to tell her side, and everyone told it for her, and she just became tabloid fodder. But that's what she ends up – that what ends up um, – that's what ends up happening, and she regrets yeah. that. But at the time, she's 17 now only, and yeah. it, she's on SNL. She's on, like, David Letterman, like, top ten. She's, like, everywhere. Every it's wild what SNL has and continues to get away with. Oh, my God. Don't even get me started. <laughs> so, and, and uh, she's on uh, the topic on Oprah, on Geraldo, on everything, you know? Mm-hmm. And we all saw what happened on... Mm-hmm. Hard copy. Yeah. Um, but it gets worse. So while she's up for bail and she's out and she's just living her life waiting for trial, not talking to the press, <sighs> the night before she's supposed to uh, go to trial, she or the night before she's supposed, to, she's supposed to report back, I guess, she goes on a date with her boyfriend at the time, whose name is Paul Minkley. She's been dating Paul Minkley. She met him through Joey. So Joey knows she has a boyfriend. So just like she knows, he has a wife. And so while they were dating, he introduced her to Paul Minkley to, like, occupy her and give her a boyfriend. So their relationship was, like, she looked at Paul as her boyfriend and, like, Joey as, like, this other guy, the other guy that she was, like, having this, like, love affair with. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So she's... It just goes more to speak to her her mental state about the whole thing up into the, the crime. But that being said, she had been dating this guy named Paul Minkley that Joey knew and introduced her to. He was about 10 years older than Amy, whereas Joey is 20 years older than Amy. And she goes on a date with him a couple days – or the night before she's supposed to report. And um, what she doesn't know 
is that Paul is secretly recording her because he has a deal with hard copy. Mm. Her boyfriend. He sells it to hard copy immediately. He has to deal with them. And they edit mm-hmm. the footage and show snippets on the news immediately of her saying all sorts of things. Like, when this is all said and done, I want a Ferrari. And things that make her look <laughs> vapid. Um, yeah. Unremorseful. She doesn't talk about the crime at all. It's just literally casual conversation with her boyfriend and like, what do you want to do after all this is over kind of stuff. But they cut out his questions and, and just air random things that she said. And by the way, at the same time, Joey Botifuco is on every single interview he could possibly be on. Now he's got his wife at his side, Mary Jo, because Mary Jo stands by him. She's <laughs> believing her husband. She thinks nice. this girl's crazy. And well, I mean, I mean, I guess she's had an idyllic life up until this moment, and right. this girl came up and shot her, so she doesn't really have a lot of reason not to. Right. She is standing by her husband. She stands by him for a long time, as a matter of fact. But yeah. throughout the entire trial, she's standing by her husband. She's pretty silent in a lot of the interviews, but she's there, and she looks so uncomfortable as he just goes on and on and on and on. She'll later say that it made her incredibly uncomfortable always. She hated doing any of that stuff. She hated being on TV. She hated him being on TV. Yeah. The trial happens in 1993. It doesn't take long. It's it's the very beginning of, like, court TV being even, like, a thing. It's, mm-hmm. it's not, like – it's before O.J. Simpson. It's before a lot of big things. So the trial goes on, and uh, she is found guilty. Or actually, I think she ends up pleading guilty at the end. She ends up pleading guilty because it, it's just not looking good. Yeah. And she accepts a reduced sentence of 5 to 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she goes she goes to jail. And uh, because I want to focus more on Mary Jo than Amy, because there's a lot of Amy Fisher stuff out there. She is a victim and a survivor in her own way. But I just, I don't want to spend all day talking about yeah. Mary, Amy here. So Yeah, yeah. You know, she she goes to jail for five to 15 years for shooting Mary Jo in her head for no reason on her front step. Um, and she is paroled. She does um, get parole after seven years. Okay. Now, why did she get parole after seven years is kind of interesting. But we'll get into that in a second, but it's, it's going to surprise you. Okay. <laughs> uh, before that happens, though, you know, Joey is just walking around like king of the castle. Ha, that crazy girl went to jail. Woof, that's all over with. Yay. Mm-hmm. And um, he's on every news outlet. He's capitalizing. His lawyer is like, get on TV. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's a Howard Stern interview that's going on where Howard Stern is interviewing someone who's allegedly like a pool boy for the Butterfuco family. And he alleges that he saw Amy at the house when Mary Jo was gone and such, but According to Joey, they didn't have a pool, so he called in, and he has this huge blow-up argument with Howard Stern and this guy on the air, and claims he's never had sex with Amy. She's just a client's daughter. Mm-hmm. And throughout all of this, Mary Jo is horrified, because everything he does gets her back on the camera, gets her back yeah. on the news. And she's trying to recover from being shot in the head. <sighs> so, um, everything is all over in court. Mary Jo is recovering. Joey's doing his, what she would call his, uh, quote, clear Joey's name tour, going on every media outlet. And mm-hmm. she's just thinking, I'll get through this annoying stuff with my, like, very immature husband. 
and hallelujah, it's over. Yeah. Nope. In 1993, not long after the actual trial was done, they bring on Mary Jo and Joey Botafuco, and she thinks it's to, like, talk about recovery. Um, Instead, on the Donahue show, the audience asks questions, and she is asked point blank while she's sitting there recovering, how could you be so stupid? He's obviously killed her on behalf of women everywhere. You're an idiot. Um, Why would you stand by him? The audience is laughing at her like she's an idiot, clapping for the people who are, like, screaming at her from the audience. And she says, quote, it was degrading, embarrassing. It was just a nightmare. Six yeah. months after I got a bullet in my head, I'm being lambasted because I'm sticking with my husband of, first, uh, of at that point, like 20-something years. Yeah. She says it's one of her biggest regrets in the whole thing was going on that show. Yeah. Because he's all over the news, though, and being so obnoxious and he can't get out of the press, more people come out of the woodwork that say – uh, yeah, he actually was dating this Amy girl. Like, I, I saw him with her. And people that aren't connected to her, people at his job, go on, like, Geraldo and uh, Jenny Jones, and they talk about how, yeah, he was dating her, and he was proud that she was 16. So wow. the DA's office is thrilled when they're finally able to charge him with something because they don't like him being in the press as much as he is. Yeah. And they feel like he's making a fool of them. And they need to do something about it. So he is uh, eventually charged, I think in 1994, with six counts of statutory rape, 12 of sodomy, and one of endangering the welfare of a child. Wow. Uh, He cuts a deal because he doesn't think he's going to get out of it. And he spends six months in jail and pays a $5,000 fine. (sighs) Wow. And at his sentencing, before he's sentenced, uh, Amy reads, quote, she reads a statement, and uh, in it she says, you know, I wasn't just a 16-year-old girl who was taken advantage of. She says, quote, I was a 16-year-old girl who was shown a world I was not ready for. Yeah. Some articles said he um, spent this full six-month term, but most of them said he only spent four months in jail, actually. And then he got six months probation. Wow. So, four months in jail. Uh, that's only his first time going to jail, though. He'll go to jail multiple more times over the years. Um, for example, <laughs> later on, he'll move to California and be arrested for soliciting sex from a sex worker um, while he was still married to Mary Jo. Um, and he is on camera for it, but told Mary Jo before the camera footage was, was out, saying, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, it was someone else. It was, conf- it was a mistake. Wow. Um, she'll describe that incident, which I think is in 1996, as the end of their marriage for her. But she Mm -hmm. stayed married to him. But in her mind at that point, that was the end. Yeah. Um, She says at this time, Mary Jo says that she became very suicidal and very depressed. And she realized that her husband was not who she thought he was. And she realized that she had been looking at things incorrectly. Uh, She started using substances. She started becoming addicted to her prescription pills that she was on for recovery. And she said it was pretty easy. No one's going to tell a woman who was shot in the head that she can't get a prescription. Yeah. So um, she said at one point in her darkest moments, she thought to get away from Joey, maybe she should just take her and her kids, drive out someplace and just asphyxiate all of them in the car just to to get away. Because she couldn't bear the thought of, of leaving this earth and leaving her kids behind with him. Oof. Yeah. So 
this is in 1996, um, they were living in California because in 1996, after all of the press and everything and the Save Joey's Reputation tour, he says he just can't handle it anymore and they want to get away. So he asks her, let's move to California from New York. And she just yeah. does it because she says she's so like almost catatonic in the relationship at this point. Yeah. She's like, whatever. So she goes there. She's still addicted to pills, and she's she's acknowledging it now. She's finally coming to terms with it. She says her life was not what she wanted. Uh, something clicked, and she's like, I need to help. I need help. So she goes to one of Joey's former attorneys uh, named Dominic Barbera, who she trusted, not the one that was um, representing him on trial, just a family attorney. She tells him she wants to go to the Betty, Betty Ford Clinic, but she can't afford it, so what can she do? And he's like, what do you mean? You got like three million. You got a you got a three million dollar settlement, and she's like, "Oh, Joey spent all that. It's been two years." So he says, "I'll work something out," and the lawyer personally paid for her entire stay for the Betty Ford Clinic and said, "Just go. I want I want you to have this." She'll always credit him as someone who saved her life, because she got clean and she's she's sober to this day, and that was in 1996. Um, while she was in rehab, she realized that she had a lot of hate for Amy that she didn't realize and that she had let it fester. And she was starting to realize that much of the hate was misplaced. And uh, she got clean, as I said. She's been in counseling and she, she got clarity. <laughs> During all of this, of course, Amy's in prison. And um, like I said, she sold her life rights. Um, and Joey Buttafuoco wasn't shy either about signing deals for, for movies and stuff. So <laughs> within a week... Actually, within two nights, three made-for-TV movies about Amy Fisher's life aired. One of On one night, two aired at the same time, competing against each other, and all were, like, spectacular ratings. One of them is called Amy Fisher, My Story. I believe that is the one that is most disliked. Um, it's based on a book that I think is not kind to Amy Fisher. Then there's Casualties of Love, which is sort of like... I feel like Amy Fisher, more favorable story. That one stars Alyssa Milano as Amy Fisher. And then the more like unbiased one, but of course not telling the true story, is called The Amy Fisher Story, and that starred Drew Barrymore as Amy Fisher. Yeah. And it was all over the place. Uh, while she was in prison, everyone in jail was watching it and telling her, hey, you're on TV. So for, for weeks, everyone was watching her on TV while she was in prison. So the reason Amy Fisher gets her parole, which we said was kind of interesting before, she was originally told, or her lawyer says, that the deal for her taking this like reduced sentence and not, not continuing with the trial was that in five years they were going to give a recommendation for her to, her to be vacated or whatever. Um, the ADA never does this and says, I didn't make that deal. So five years comes. It's looking like her parole is going to be denied. There's, uh, there's not a lot of people on her side, but she's still going to apply. She applies, and after five years, she's denied. After seven years, uh, she, you know, she didn't get her deal. She's applying again, and Amy's mother says to her attorney, like, what can we do? Like, is there hope? And her attorney says, maybe like, someone should reach out to Mary Jo. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So Amy writes an impassioned letter to Mary Jo. I'm so sorry. I'm, I regret it. I take full responsibility. A lot of stuff, you know. And uh, Mary Jo is moved and testifies on her behalf at the parole hearing, and it's what gets her out. Mary Jo now says, looking back, quote, 
This was all just a ploy, and she's full of shit. She says, quote, she has not done one thing in 27 years to rectify this to any of us. And she regrets it now because she feels like she was duped. But she's kind of like put it behind her. But she's like, you know, this girl got out. And what has she done with her life versus what she what has she done to make any of this right? Yeah. Uh, in 2003, Mary Jo files for divorce after 26 years of marriage to Joey Botafuco. He does not contest it. He says she's the love of her life. He doesn't want the divorce, but, you know, he moves on. Amy, after she gets out of prison, um, she gets married again. She has three kids. She marries a former cop, and there's this— he kind of looks like Henry Rollins, and there's this, like, really weird— I don't know where in the timeline it was, but I know they eventually divorced, so it had to be somewhere, I don't know, in the— first five years of her being out of out of jail she marries this cop and there's this weird footage on the internet i guess they were doing this um celebrity fight night thing on pay-per-view or something at the time and there's a celebrity fight night thing that joey botafuco has signed on to do with amy's then husband the former cop guy and they like they do it, I think, because I saw the video of the commercial for it where they're, like, both standing. You know those boxing things where the boxers, like, stand face-to-face? I don't know what they are, but it's one of those, and, of course, they fight. Okay, so that's one thing that happens. Um, Amy will eventually divorce her husband, or they get divorced, and they sell a sex tape of the two of them. He says that she forced him to sell it. She says he forced her to sell it. Who knows? Um, This begins her career in pornography. She will say that he got her into it, but she does adult movies for a few years after that. I believe she has some sort of like falling out with a production company and then leaves. But to this day, she's changed her name. But as of at least 2020, um, she's like a cam girl now. Okay. I think. I'm not really sure. Um, And she's, she's changed her name and she's living... Somewhere in New York, uh, evidently. That's what she's doing. Um, Other things that Joey and her do after the whole weird fight night thing. Joey reaches out to the TV shows Insider and Entertainment Tonight in the um, mid-aughts, early mid-aughts, and sets up three separate specials with them over those years, over those two years. One is a reunion show where he and Amy have a reunion on camera and argue. The second one is one where he, Mary Jo, and Amy all meet. It's 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 a total explosion. It's supposed to be just a meeting thing, but of course everyone involved in it says we expected it to be a mess and we hoped it would be, and it was. Um, Mary Jo yells at Amy and stuff on camera. She says it was like such a great offer financially that Mar- that um what's his name Joey had presented her with, even though they were divorced at this time. That she just, she needed the money. And she's like, I regret it, but I I had to do it for the money. And she's mostly quiet in it, but she does have a blow up at Amy and him. And he storms off and cries and is like, oh, it's love. It's very pathetic. It's ridiculous. And then he has a third special where it's just him and Amy. And they pretend to be in a relationship now. (sighs) They kiss in a limo. They say, oh, we're just, what do you mean? We're an odd couple. They're like trying to be like all, it's, it's pretty disgusting. And, um. Mary Jo is disgusted by it, and their daughter, Jessie, like, stops talking to her father after this and says, like, this, it was such a mockery to see him walking around with the woman who shot my mother and tried to kill her on the front porch, 
and he's pretending they're and he says it was all like per, per pretend and he just keeps saying things in interviews because he's still talking as he's still talking and he's like oh, you know I, I i made a few mistakes yeah sure i card capitalized like he's just so dismissive of everything like hey what's the big deal uh, some better news in 2005 um jesse gets her mom on the oprah show and the Oprah Winfrey show, and they talk about her struggle with her facial paralysis, and a plastic surgeon be- reaches out because of it and says they're going to do something for her pro bono, and he he looks at her face and helps her, like, reconstruct it so that she can look at herself in the mirror again. She can barely even brush her teeth after everything's happening. Her her paralyzed portion of her face is it sags, so she can't close her mouth. Yeah. So he gets to do this work on her, and they reveal her her new look in 2006 on Oprah, and she's never been happier. She says, quote, I look how I used to look. I'm on cloud nine for a long time. Steve Gleeman, the man who initially drove her to the house when she pretended to sell candy, came out 20 years after the um, the event. And, or sorry, 28 years after the event. So not to think until 2019. He comes out and says, oh, by the way, Six months before she was shot, which was before they went together, um, he actually did go to her house on his own. He was hired by Amy to kill her. He did go, and he shot through the window, thinking he killed her, and then drove away. But he missed. On camera, on like an ABC interview, they find this out, Jessica and her mom, Mary Jo. And they're both like, are you kidding me? And they run and grab pictures. And they have pictures from that Thanksgiving where they a, a bullet came through their house, through the window, during the day, I think after or before Thanksgiving, and they have the picture of the bullet hole in the wall. No one, there was a police report, no one knew what it was. They thought it was just like a weird drive-by in the neighborhood or something, like a prank, and that they got lucky that no one was hit. And they never, they never thought about it again because it was so bizarre, and the cops made it seem like it was like, oh, this must have been a weird thing. They never found the gun. Yeah. But 28 years later, Steve Gleeman confesses to it after the statute of limitations has expired. So he's walking around like, I had to say it. He's in an interview. I had to say it. Uh, you know, it's the right thing to do. Yeah, okay, okay. Get your paycheck. So um, as far as Joey Botafuco, as I've said, he's done all of these other appearances, all of this stuff. He's been arrested um, about three or four times up until 2005. In 2019, he says he's he's trying to do the right thing now. He he realizes he's capitalized all of, of this. Uh, no, he's he's done counseling. He's got a life coach now, and uh, he's he's really proud. Now he wants to sell a movie on his life that's going to tell the story of a young Joey Buttafuoco and the real story. Wow, who cares? Who cares? And what have you learned? Because uh, <laughs> right, LOL. <laughs> it's 2019. In the interview that you're talking about your your growth, you're doing what you've been doing. So, yeah, um, it's not out yet, so I guess it didn't get picked up. Mary Jo will write a novel uh, or write a, a tell-all book later on in life. She titled it "Getting It Through My Thick Skull: Colon Why I Stayed, What I Learned, and What Millions of People Involved with Sociopaths Need to Know." Hmm. Uh, it's a best New York Times bestseller. She real when she realized that the man she was married to was a sociopath. Um, and she started to, like, research and do the signs and be in recovery. She realized that uh, most women probably don't know that they're living with sociopaths if they are. So she yeah. wants to, you know, 
help others. And she's a huge advocate for facial paralysis um, studies. And um, she always goes on like speaking tours of like about recovery. She remarried in 2012 to a man named Stu Tendler. Um, They ended up divorcing, I think, in 2016. Uh, They stayed very close, though. It was amicable. And then Mm -hmm. Stu, unfortunately, passes from cancer in 2018. Uh, Again, Paul stays out of the spotlight. Uh, Jessica currently, I believe, lives with her mom. Her mom has some, Mary Jo has some health issues. They didn't, they weren't specific, but Jessica lives with her to take care of her. They're very close. And um, what she does now is she produces children's theater. And um, while, while Paul wants no part of it and chose to change his last name, which Mary Jo and Jessica respect, um, they still have a very good relationship with him. Jessica says, I don't want to change my last name because she wants to change the opinion on her last name instead. And she okay. realizes that this might be an uphill battle, and she realizes she might look back on her life on her deathbed and be like, that was a waste of time. But she doesn't want to change her name. She's not going to let her father ruin who she is as a person. So that's her her sort of like personal goal. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to end with just a couple of quotes real quick, is that Amy, when asked... Um, about why she did it has given conflicting answers over time. In her most recent novel or memoir, she says that she doesn't have a good answer. Quote, imagine not having a good answer for shooting someone. The best I could come up with is that I wanted Joey Buttafuoco to think I was cool. I wanted his approval. It's frightening to do something like what I did and not have a concrete reason. After years of self-reflection and healing, I came to the conclusion it was what Joey wanted me to do. And I did what Joey wanted me to do. Mm. And as far as Mary Jo Bartofuco, as far as March of 2022 in her last interview, so pretty recent, she says, quote, I have a lot of the usual old lady aches and pains, the hip hurts, the back hurts. You know, the body says to you, oh, you want to do that? (laughs) But Mm. I was just telling Jesse, this is the most peaceful time of my life. Mentally, I'm in a good place. And she continues, I'm content. I'm happy. I'm very grateful. This is the most peaceful time of my life, but it's been a hard-earned peace. Hmm. And that is the story of Mary Jo Buttafuoco, the incredible survival story that is yeah. often looked at as a salacious tale of an affair based on the people she was involved with. Wow. That is wild. That was daunting, but uh, yeah. I I was happy to find so much. It's so hard sometimes to find the survivors' stories or the victims' stories, and it is so refreshing to be able to really hear from her. Yeah, yeah, great job. Thank you so much. I know it went a little long, but it's it's Amy Fisher, Mary Jo, but if you go, I mean, each victim hey. is survivors in their own right. Yeah. Um, well, what would you say, how would you rate the episode for how it, uh, watchability first, I guess? I thought it was actually pretty good for the most yeah. part for watchability. I thought the acting was better. The storylines were a little bit more like, some of the twists at the end were a little bit like, okay. And the yeah. I'm sleeping with my stepdaughter thing, like, um, I'll give it a B minus. Yeah. I would say, yeah, I would say B minus. I mean, Sarah Paulson was great. Oh, she was great. Uh, yeah, B minus for watchability. And then I guess for how it dealt with stuff, it, you I don't know. know. I mean, it certainly portrayed similarly the sort of like, uh, you know, this young girl had been 
essentially like groomed by this older man and had been sort of forced into this cover-up, which I guess wasn't necessarily part of the Buttafuoco story, but uh, I don't know. What would you say about how it dealt with stuff? I feel like since it blended a few cases together and I read a little bit about the other two, mm-hmm. I can see where the differences lie because they're more related to the script story, I think, mm-hmm. a lot of it, especially the heiress thing. And um, yeah, so the parts that they... They related to the Amy Fisher story and Mary Jo Bartofuco. I think it's they did okay. Mm-hmm. They did run with the narrative at the time, though. You know, the obsessed, sort of crazed girl. Yeah. Um. And yes, under the thumb of a of an older man, but they, you know, she was the 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 wild eyed crazed one. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I don't know. I mean, it was the narrative at the time, but that that's what we're rating. So I guess I'll say like. I'll give it a C minus. Yeah, I would say it wasn't too bad, so I would say C, C minus. Yeah. Did you know that for zero, zero, zero dollars a month, you can help support our show simply by rating and reviewing our podcast on whatever platform that you're currently listening to this episode? That's right. And you're probably really popular and have a lot of friends, and they probably also would like to listen to our podcast, so please go tell them to. And there's no need to go on AskJeeves.com. I'll tell you exactly where to find us right now. Our social media is Ripped Headlines on all platforms. Our email is RippedHeadlinesPod at gmail.com. Yes, and uh, our uh, a percentage of our Patreon proceeds. Wait, I got lost. The website. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Don't forget to check out our website, RippedHeadlinesPod.com. There you'll find the link to our Patreon, where we have fun episodes where we review movies and books and play games and things like, you know, Would You Rather and World's Most Famous. So go check that out. Yes. And a percentage of those Patreon proceeds get donated to the Equal Justice, Equal Justice Initiative. <laughs> so by supporting us, you're also supporting positive change in the world. And if you want, you can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash nandmat. Thank you so much for listening to Rip from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We'll see you next week. And until then, stay out of the headlines. Oof. Bye. <laughs> we made it. <laughs> <laughs>